Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And it is time to uh, to put our final thoughts on uh, on Mark Twain's uh, historical romances, his his um, his fictional accounts set in the in the early modern period and the Middle Ages. Um, obviously, this represents a big chunk of his work, so it's something we should take serious. Um, I think overall, it's pretty clear that he's seen the the Middle Ages, early modern period, as a useful foil, a useful comparative to his own time. I think um, he's often uh, pretty overtly laying criticism of his, of his own time here. So in Prince of the Pauper, you have a criticism of class status, of slavery, of... Um, of of any of poverty um you know the growing gap between rich and poor as you see in the gilded age he of course wrote wrote the book gave the name to the age the gilded age um so there's that now i criticize that book a little bit because it doesn't it, it basically relies on individual um solutions to problems it's like if you can convince the king through his struggle it's, it's like a it's it's like a, a Christmas Carol kind of account. Then we looked at Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's Court, and there I thought we got a little more of a radical critique of the world that existed in Mark Twain's time, with uh, you know looking at more systemic things such as technology, looking at certainly a very close look at slavery, um, criticizing aristocracy, of course. So there's that kind of good old fashioned American critique of the monarchy in both of these books. But, you know, there's also a lot of parallels for his own society, especially I think he's got his fascination with technology, but he also sees it as dangerous. Uh, the questions of how power is implemented in society. So we get all that. And, and I do think that's a more presents a more radical critique of power than we get in The Prince and the Pauper, because we do have someone who's trying to reform society at every level. So uh, I think this is a, a window into maybe how he views power, technology, and and social reforms and 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 what makes a society like let's let's it's it's something that's like deadwood right he's it's like how do you actually make a society right what do we actually need to do and i think our character in that book sort of does it wrong he doesn't really build it from the grassroots he just tries to impose it on top like a colonialist kind of narrative um it's actually be interesting to see what mark twain thought about this book when he later on became more critical of colonialism and imperialism and, and wrote some accounts uh, lambasting it and then we get to uh the personal recollections of joan of arc written when he's an old, old older man it's it's written about the time that he lost his daughter who he uh, who somehow reminds him of joan of arc um i didn't say too much about that that's pretty clear that he's got his his one daughter in mind when he's thinking about joan of arc um where's the is and in, in, in contrast, we have much more positive view of monarchy and a positive view of like religion. So it's a weird book. And I think that's it's harder to maybe interpret in part of Mark Twain's career because it is so um, supportive of those institutions. Um, but I was I've been trying to get at different ways we can read Joan of Arc in the last few episodes. I have I've been kind of neglecting the more systematic chapter by chapter read that I sometimes do. I haven't actually done much of that in this Mark Twain series. It's I'm just trying to move on to more thematic approaches. Um, but you know, I was saying like we could uh, 
you know, maybe the, the lesson is we need to defer to the young a little bit more. We need to maybe her radicalism is in the, coming from her youth. And maybe when we ha we're in a bad situation as a nation, we can't look to the old institutions and old, old leaders for, for solutions. We need to look to the young, right? I talked uh, about that. I talked about um, the, how Joan of Arc somehow reestablished a link between the people and the institutions, church and the king. And I think that's where really there's kind of a radical potential reading of this book. You know, if like Joan of Arc, young or old, it doesn't matter what her, her age is for this, because it's the, the key thing is that she took a relationship that was broken, the relationship between the state, the monarchy and the people by war, by 100 years of war, by occupation, by a foreign power, um, by corruption in the church and all these things and through her will through her efforts through her she's able to mobilize the people to reunite these things right now the, all of that leads us to the final uh chapters of the book which is a total betrayal of that right so it gets turned on its head because just as soon as she's at the moment of victory it is the french elite the church institutions the English enemies, of course, collaborating. The ruling class, a transnational ruling class. I mean, that's the, the devastating thing here, right? Is like the enemies of Joan of Arc are a ruling class that's no longer going to be fighting over France. That battle's won, right? They can't fight over that. But what they can fight is preserving their institutional power and authority in French society and, and society across Western Europe, ultimately, right? It's like the... Whether the English throne controls France is small potatoes compared to this larger question is, are the people going to have a say in, in the early modern world? Or is the modern world, are we going to go the way of, like, of Luther's peasant revolts? Right? So it's, if you think of the context of the, not the book being written, although I think that's there too. I mean, certainly that was a period of intense class conflict and growing divides between the political realm and the, and the popular movements and all that. But just in the time it's set, right, around the corner of the Hundred Years' War is the Reformation, right? And the Reformation unleashed, like, the Peasants' Wars and uprisings across Europe. <clears throat> you also have, in the aftermath of the Black Death, peasant revolts in other parts of Western Europe. So the, the, those potentialities are there. Right. I, I think many historians would point to, you know, you have the high Middle Ages where there is sort of like the con the peasant commune and, and the manor. And there is sort of a, a reciprocal. There's a there's a relationship, a deal worked out between the working people and the state. Um, and then the church has its ideological role in that providing services to people, religious services, but also governmental types of services, marriage, you know, um, burials, those kinds of things. And of course, the central ritual of the Eucharist. And then you have the, the state obviously taking its piece of peasant surpluses, but still committed to the peasant as a class, right? Now the Black Death comes along and shatters that. The Hundred Years War comes around and shatters that relationship, right? So then we're going to get cross international across state lines, alliances to stop a more popular movement, right? This is what happens in the peasant wars in Germany, where Luther actually says, 
we need to hold hands as the elite to prevent the the peasants from taking over right and if you want to go ahead you can maybe think of many-headed hydra book limbaugh and radiker's book where you have in the origins of capitalism international working class networks that get challenged by an international ruling class that yeah they have their wars and their conflicts but they're largely in cooperation over smashing these popular movements right and i think it's in this context that the 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 cooperative suppression of Joan of Arc by both the French and the English. And the, and the English get maybe the, a lot of the pressure. But remember, the church is the, the Inquisition is the hammer that's doing the crushing here. And that's international. That's not national yet. The, the churches would, to some degree, become national later in history, in part, again, due to the Reformation, but also we could say to, due to... Um, you know, movements like the the French move to more national church in the period of absolutism and then nationalism, right? All these things are going to nationalize the, the church in greater, greater amount, in greater extents. But the Joan of Arc, um, that's done by a church that's, is this still during the Avignon papacy? So maybe you still can maybe point to, there's a French church and an Italian church, and they don't. They're, they're, it's broken a little bit, but by and large, you still have this idea of a Catholic, universal Catholic church that's not nationally oriented. Um, and they're the they're the hammer that crushes Joan of Arc, even though they're kind of doing the behest of the English ruling class and ultimately the French. Remember, the French uh, handed her over. All right. So it's in this context that I think the drama of the trial is relevant to us today. Now, as for the book itself, the it's a love letter to Joan of Arc, the whole thing. The whole thing is gushy. It, it's like, I, I think that's one reason maybe this isn't the most popular book these days is like, we don't like these types of heroes anymore. We like our heroes a little bit flawed. We don't we don't like that perfect hero anymore. Like the, the Christ-like figure that we get in Joan of Arc here. Like she doesn't do anything wrong, right? She's incapable of doing anything wrong. She's got a response to every criticism. She wins every victory except her final one, the trial. And that's rigged, so it doesn't really count, right? That kind of hero that doesn't run into serious obstacles that's, that she can't overcome. Um, I'm not accusing her of being a Mary Sue here. Um, that's a historical question that really can't be answered here. But the point is, Mark Twain is gushing over Joan of Arc in a way that's kind of gratuitous. And, and not the most pleasant to read, which is why I think this is, as much as I like this book, and I think it's valuable, it's it's a little bit of a, it's more drudgeries involved in reading it than the other two. I mean, I think the other two are not only the shorter, they're a little more, I mean, they're darker st stories, all right? I mean, here the, it's really good versus evil. In Connecticut Yankee, in King Arthur's Horse, it's like man versus himself. It's more like Shakespearean. Prince and the Pauper, you have uh, good and bad on both sides of the class line. And, and Edward is sympathetic, but also kind of nasty. He's got the whipping boy. And same thing with uh, Jack, um, Tom. Sorry. Uh, Tom, the, the boy who becomes the king through the accidental changing clothes or whatever. He's a complex character. Joan of Arc's not. Joan of Arc not only bats a, 
bats a thousand, she's always hitting home runs, and it's like a, the umpire calling her out at the plate every time. It, that's that's basically she achieves everything. Any failure, any loss is due to some other force, and and some kind of oppressive force, and that narrative goes down easily and for certain people, right? But I don't think it's appealing to us largely. If you just look at the media today, we love our our, our villains who are darker. That's what prestige TV is all about, right? Television of our time is all about the darker heroes. Even our superheroes are presented in darker ways, not so heroically. Um, we, we we save that kind of heroic narrative for for the hyperbolic propaganda of like, of China or North Korea or a place like that, that, you know, really has black and white portrayals of, of, of leaders. Well, anyways, I, I find the, the trial stuff uh, a little, a little boring because it's just some genius plans worked out by the prosecutors to, to trap her into some trick, like get her to confess that she was talking to the devil or get her to confess some heresy. Right. And then she like, adeptly evades them now i get that that comes from the trial transcripts so it's not like making mark twain's not making it up as far as i know i i think this is how it's like recorded but still it's like she's like effortlessly dodging every blow they have to do multiple trials of course or multiple sessions i think in the historical record i, I looked at it, it was presented as multiple sessions but here it's presented as like multiple trials in different locations and then eventually they just have to say well guilty anyways because you know we're not going to trap this this person um and that's kind of what you get um i guess it is worth pointing out like what she's being accused of obviously witchcraft and heresy is part of it but there's a lot of emphasis on like the cross-dressing aspect of it which i think is a very like some when i'm reading that i'm thinking is this Modern, again, another issue of like modern people projecting what they think gender relations should be, or is this really how late medieval people like? Do they really care that much about what women dressed as? You know, when most people are 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 made dressing in homemade clothes, anyways, it's not like there's like outside of for the maybe for the nobility, there's distinct differences between men and women's dress, but among the peasants. I mean, sure, there's probably differences, dresses and pants and things like that being, I don't know. I don't know what peasants at the time wore. Uh, I, I assume there are some gender differences, but I don't think it's something that they obsessed about. Obviously, monks wore dresses. So this this emphasis on the, on the cross-dressing aspect of it is, I guess, a little bit fascinating, but it seems a weird thing for them to be so obsessed about when they're really trying to get at heresy and, and witchcraft and, and those kinds of crimes. But I don't know. I think, yeah, I guess my overall feelings about the personal recollections of Joan of Arc are, you know, read it if you want, but it's, it is very much a, a gratuitous love letter to Joan of Arc by an old man who you know even had to write this under a different name because he didn't think people would take it seriously because he was kind of a jokester it's not funny there's not a single joke in the whole book it's taken very seriously um there are relevant themes here though about like what joan of arc was actually achieving in her her revolution 
she was promising to bring together the church and the people, the state and the people, the monarchy and the people into something that had potential, but it has to be decapitated, right? So I think this ultimately becomes a story of, of the suppression of a revolutionary moment, right? And the historical what if, I guess you could play with is like, what if Joan of Arc gets away, doesn't get captured, is able to continue her march on Paris or whatever, not only win the war, but in the aftermath of the war, create a much more democratic France. What does that mean for the Reformation? What does that mean for the rise of these early modern absolutist states that we get? Ultimately, France becomes the, the centerpiece of the absolutist movement under Louis XIV. What does that mean for the Atlantic world and the origins of like the slave trade and early capitalism? Right? Is that, is that a, a what-if moment of history? And I don't think Mark Twain really wants to answer that. I think the maybe I think the overall problem with this book is this hyper hyper focus on Joan of Arc as as uh, a heroic semi divine figure, and we don't get her flaws very much. We don't get um, basically this is like a it's actually written the author the 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 fictional author of this tale is like a simp. A Joan of Arc simp, and that he never stops being that. That he never is, he's not able to see her objectively, and he also can't see these themes that I'm teasing out of it. Right? Neither can Mark Twain. So those are those are kind of my overall feelings about this this book. So it is what it is. I don't have that much more to say about it. Uh, I think this one's probably missable, um, but it's up to you. So in the next episode, we'll jump into A Tramp Abroad. Uh, I think there'll be three, maybe four episodes. I think it might be four. Uh, I don't quite re uh, remember. But I'm reading it now, and I'm looking forward to talking about it uh, next time with you. So anyways, let me know what you think of The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, if you're one of the few people who has actually read it, um, or any of the, my attempts to interpret it. Um, but that's it. We're done with novels for a while. We're going to go jump to the last two travel narratives and then then we'll come back to the final novels like the gilded age and the late uh tom sawyer books and uh those those, those tales um oh an american claimant can't forget that one that's coming around the bend too so um yeah we're about halfway through this series of mark twain a little bit less uh it's been fine i'm gonna keep going through it till i finish but anyways, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.